Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Haw Show podcast today on the pod with the dramatic surge in respiratory illnesses. Health authorities say no to mask mandates. Provincial Health Officer Bonnie Henry joins us. Plus, what's in a name? Plenty, says former leader Gordon Wilson. He joins us as the BC Liberals become BC United. And 35 years ago today, an Englishman promised to never give you up. We look at the rise of the Rick Roll. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Well, let's uh, jump in here. Why the decision not to move towards uh, uh, mask mandates in this province? Yeah, well, as we've seen across the country, you know, mandates are, are very um, strong measures that apply uh, across the board in a variety of situations. We're just not in the place where that's needed right now. Masks are important, and there's really important places where we do need to wear them, and we should all be um, carrying them with us during this period of time. But our mandates are, are limited to those areas where we absolutely need to wear them all the time, and that's in our healthcare settings here in the province. Mm-hmm. How concerned are you with uh, influenza cases up uh, 90% in some cases? Yes, and influenza has, has started um, to creep in, and that's something that we, it's a bit earlier than we usually see it, and that's something that we were concerned about and that we've been preparing for. So it it started now, we're seeing influenza A, particularly affecting young people. Mm-hmm. But we need to remember that influenza, um, we have good vaccines um, that are available for children as young as six months of age, and they do a really good job at protecting against influenza. So now's the time to get that shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there a um, a moment or a threshold that has to be crossed where you would look at mask mandates? And certainly, they haven't brought them in in British in in Ontario. They have significant challenges there. They are certainly being encouraged to wear masks. Is there a threshold uh, that has to be crossed in your mind where you would think about uh, and talk about mask mandates in this province? Well, we never think about a mask mandate in and of itself. And when we had these, if we think about uh, over the last two years, where we've had a whole bunch of things going on, masking is was one important and remains one important part of that. So when we had no vaccine for children, we had a lot of other restrictions in place. We were had smaller numbers of groups. We had uh, limits on activities, limits on gatherings, and we had masking as part of the way to try and do everything we could because so many people were susceptible to having severe illness from from COVID in that case, from SARS-CoV-2. But we're in a very different situation now. We are seeing a variety of different viruses that cause infections. Some people have immunity. We have good, strong immunity for serious illness in in almost everybody now um, because of vaccinations and sometimes from previous infections. So we're in a very different situation. So I can't see a situation right now where we would have a mask mandate, for example, without having other measures in place too. And that would only happen if we had... Um, a brand new virus that, again, was causing very severe illness in lots of people. What are you hearing? Uh, I mean, you're obviously dealing with the World Health Organization um, on a regular basis. What are you hearing broadly, just for a moment, in regards to our fight globally against COVID, and, and how does that fit in the context of British Columbia? Yeah, so we are watching uh, very carefully around the world and particularly looking at, you know, what strains are arising where. Um, And globally, we are seeing uh, pretty much similar to what we're seeing here in Canada. We have very high vaccination rates in this country. Um, And so that reduces the chance that we're going to see another new variant 
arise in this country. And we need to continue to work together to to improve um, immunization access and rates around the world. And so we are watching. And what we would expect to see from the the people who work on on viruses is is that it's very likely if something emerged it would emerge outside of Canada and we'd have some time to prepare for it but those are those are things that um that we need to recognize now that we're traveling um that's why we're seeing more of these viruses that were they're around they're in our environment all the time if we think about RSV and influenza and they tend to to surge at certain times of the year but it's because we're moving about more and having more contact but those are also really important things uh, for us in terms of um, being able to connect with people, being able to work, and all those other things that um, are important as well. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in regards to a, a third and fourth vaccination, some have only had two and they're comfortable with that. Um, I've had others say that, look, if you've had the first two, there's so many different strains, it's almost like not having, uh, not being vaccinated if you don't get a third vaccination or a fourth one in many cases for British Columbians. Uh, should people continue to get those third and fourth vaccinations or do you think we are protected enough? Yeah, that's a really complicated question. Mm-hmm. And and the answer is a little bit of everything. We know that two doses of vaccines um, for COVID uh, are very effective at and give you long-term what we call cell-mediated, those memory cells of our immune system. Mm-hmm. So they protect us from severe illness, even from Omicron. And we're seeing that um, across the board. But we know that, that the antibody parts that vaccine stimulates or infection We get these antibodies in our blood, and those fade over time. And those are the ones that protect us from getting infected in the first place. So booster doses are really good at getting more antibodies to give you that protection in the short term against infection. And that lasts for about three or four months. So that's why we're saying this fall booster, regardless of how many doses you've had before, this fall booster is really good to protect you for the next few months against infection with SARS-CoV-2. It will also increase your your cell-mediated immunity, but that's staying strong. So that's something that's really good. Do you worry about our hospitals, though, at our emergency centres with uh, the impact um, uh, influenza and RSV uh, are having on children, or do you think we're able to deal with it, uh, and particularly just uh, with the, the, the need for hospital beds? Yeah, right now we're dealing with it, um, but it is something that we've been, of course, um, planning for and concerned about. Um, and that's why we have things like vaccination mandates and mask mandates in all of our healthcare settings to do everything we can in those settings to make sure we're preventing transmission and being able to um, make sure that people are, get the care they need. Um, obviously, it's going to be a tough few weeks. We, we know that uh, young people are being affected. It's going up quite quite quickly. Um, So the best things that we can do as a community is to get vaccinated, to stay away and stay home when we're sick so that we're not passing it on to others. And and that's where mask wearing in community settings is important, especially if you're indoors, if you're not feeling well at all, if you have a little bit of the sniffles, or if you're in crowded settings with other people and poor ventilation. Those are times when we all should be wearing masks. When when does respiratory season peak uh, generally? Mm. Well, 
you, you know, that's a, also a very interesting question. Because normally, uh, for us in British Columbia, we tend to see it increasing in in November, December, and and really peak in January. But we're seeing everything move a little bit earlier this year, and that's something that we saw some foreshadowing when we were watching what happened in Australia, New Zealand. So we've been preparing for that. Um, so it is usually lasts about um, you know four to six weeks, and we're just starting to see influenza taking off right now. RSV has gone up a little bit, but mm-hmm. not as much as we've seen in some other parts of the country. And COVID is really um, still in, staying fairly steady and, and low. And I think that's because we've had such a good response to booster doses. So it, it's likely we're going to have another three to four weeks of, of strain on the system. Hopefully, it'll start settling down after that. Well, that's very practical information. And for for the folks listening out there at the end of the day, wear a mask uh, when you are uncomfortable. Uh, If you're sick, stay at home more than anything else, and that'll help the overall population and our our healthcare system. That's right. And get those vaccines. Get those vaccines. Dr. Henry, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Well, the British Columbia Liberal Party members have voted to change the party's name to B.C., United. Leader Kevin Falcon said 80% of the voters who cast a ballot were in favor of the name change, and he was thrilled uh, with the result. Uh, Here is Mr. Falcon uh, talking to the press earlier today. The key thing about it is I want this party to be a big tent party. I want to make sure that, as I've said so many times, regardless of who people choose to love or what God they choose to pray to, that they're going to feel welcome in a BC United. And that's something that was really important to me. United by values, united by determination to focus on results and outcomes, that's the kind of folks that I think will be drawn to our party. Joining me now to talk about this name change is Richard Zussman, Global News reporter based in that, uh, the BC legislature. Hello, uh, Richard. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So uh, any surprise to you in regards to the name change? No, and I, you, you did some pretty good digging into what these results sort of mean in terms of how few of the members actually voted here. But I don't think it's any surprise at all that those that actually went out and voted, voted in favor of the name change. This has been percolating for a long, long time. The fact that there are members within the BC Liberal Party, largely from the conservative wing, who have long not liked the idea that liberal was in the party's name and have long pushed to change it. Mm-hmm. And BC United reflects what the party came up with. And the process by which they came to that name uh, was slightly problematic. There's a lot of names the party just can't choose. There are rules from Elections BC that preclude uh, any name that was used for 30 years, in essence, from being used. So the party did not have a lot of options. This was what they believed was the best of the options. And, you know, to your question, it was no surprise that party voted to move forward with this eventually becoming the new party's name. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, what I found interesting was that, uh, you know, well, the, some folks didn't like the Liberal and BC Liberal, uh, but it won the 1996 election when it comes to the popular vote. They lost government, obviously, to Glenn Clark at that time. In 2001 onwards, they won government. In 2017, when they lost government, they still had more seats than any other party uh, in the House. So it's been a successful name in regards to votes, in regards to attracting British Columbians. But it is a coalition of uh, federal conservatives and, 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 and federal liberals. Do you think it also speaks a little bit to how difficult it is just to, to, to balance both of these entities in a in a really polarized uh, political environment at the moment. Yeah. yeah, coalitions are tough. 
And as we've seen in many places uh, across the world, there are coalitions that are growing on the traditional fringes of the political spectrum on both the left and the right. And the growth of those movements is making it much harder for traditional parties to operate. And there is no doubt worry within the BC Liberals about what it would mean if a group grew up from the right wing of the party uh, and what damage that could do uh, politically and what sort of role the BC Conservative Party has and it could it emerge as a potential option for those right-wing voters. But what is complicated has confused me through all of this, Jazz, and, you know, for those outside of BC who are confused about, oh, what is the BC Liberal in BC? I always say BC elections are won this way. Federal NDP voters are going to largely vote for the BC NDP. Federal Conservative voters are largely going to vote for the BC Liberal. And the election is won in terms of where federal Liberal voters go be it BC NDP, be it BC Liberal. And I've always thought that Liberal name, as you alluded to, was an advantage to the party rather than a disadvantage. So obviously Kevin Falcon and his team have different thoughts about that and believe that BC United will help them. But I'm not so sure. Uh, and as, as you had said, 18% of the party voted. 8,000 people voted. That's a, And there's 44,000 members. That comes out to about 18%. I would love to see, and this was never released, the regional breakdown of where those votes came from. If the votes all came from the interior and the north, well, doesn't that defeat the purpose of where you actually need to win, which is the uh, the Metro Vancouver, uh, Metro Victoria, Southern Vancouver Island uh, areas? And I just don't know the liberal name. One would argue, if you just look at the breakdown now, even federally, does well in Vancouver, in Surrey, uh, in Burnaby, uh, and in in Richmond. Those are the four largest cities uh, in in um, in British Columbia, and they represent collectively about one third of the entire seats in the legislature. So I'm not sure if that solves their core problem, which is attracting Metro Vancouver voters. No, and they and they need to attract good candidates in Metro Vancouver, and they need to speak to the issues that matter to people in Metro Vancouver. And a name doesn't do that. And the other thing, Josh, we haven't even talked about yet, is there's no guarantee they're going to change the name before the next election. This is one of these things. You remember John Horgan said he was going to get rid of seasonal time changes? Yeah. And they passed legislation to do so, and that legislation still sits here on a shelf in Victoria, and they can put it in place at any time they want, but they haven't yet. And I think there's a lot that goes into changing a name. You have to uh, inform the public. You have to change your signage. You have to change your branding. You have to upload to a new website. There, there are a lot of things that go on that vary in difficulty. And when you're trying to reboot, to rebrand, to build policy, to recruit candidates, do they have the time and effort to spend um, teaching people about a new party, yeah. I wonder. And and so if there's, I am, it will be curious to me to see if this is a change they actually put in place before the next election, which is right now scheduled for the fall of 2024. And yes, the members want it, but do they want it enough that it could potentially mean hurting the party because of a lack of brand recognition in the next provincial election. Yeah, I find it interesting just because we're heading into an, we are in an era of hyper-diversity here. We have 440, 450,000 people, immigrants moving to Canada every year. We had 100,000 people move to BC alone last year. Our immigration numbers will hit 500,000 by 2025. They're predominantly immigrants that come from 
Asia, uh, the Middle East, uh, and Africa. Uh, so these are new immigrants, and it's it's fundamentally changing the makeup and face of, of the Lower Mainland if it doesn't have, if it hasn't already. And you see them places. Forget about Vancouver. I mean, I was looking at Langley Township. The visible minority population has gone from nineteen to twenty seven percent in just five years. That kind of change usually takes at least a decade. So it's just moving that much faster. Question is, does the Liberal name actually attract those people, or do you think this BC United is going to do the job? So uh, it's fascinating to me as to what the, the the party is hoping to do and trying to do and if they can make that change quickly because it does take time. And the other thing is, you know this very well, uh, opposition never gets elected. It, governments get unelected. People just get fed up with a, a particular government and throw throw them out. Do you think people are angry enough yet at the NDB where it's saying hey, it's time for these guys to go? I had a feeling that if the provincial election happened right around the same time as the municipal election, mm-hmm. we'd probably have a new government in British Columbia right now. Mm-hmm. But it, that isn't what happened. Uh, people maybe got change out of their system. There's going to be a lot that has to happen here, Jazz. Like, we'll see how much of a reset David Eady presses here on this government. Does he continue to plod along with the focus that the BCNDP has established over the last five years? Or does he produce some policy items that are a marked shift away from what we've seen while also holding true to the core policies that have made the BCNDP largely popular under John Horgan in this province. That is the answer to your question. Mm -hmm. We do not know yet because we have a new premier coming into place on Friday. And uh, as you mentioned, a lot of other factors are coming into play well beyond the BC Liberals changing their name. There are so many other crucial pieces around health care, around public safety, around inflation, around housing. Those core policy pieces, so much will change between now and when British Columbians go and vote. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes uh, we have to remind ourselves, whatever your name is, if people are tired of a political party and they want to get rid of you, they'll get rid of you. And then Liberals are supposed to win 2017, but they said housing is an issue, you didn't deal with it, you're out of here. And uh, and that may be the case with the NDP, or it may not. So we can debate name change, but there's bigger issues that will transpire over the next uh, couple of years, which you've articulated very well. Housing, public safety, mental health addiction, economy, how that plays out in the next couple of years and how EB and his government handle it will be probably the true barometer of what uh, 2024 will look like. Richard, thank you. And make sure that you order your BC United scarf or kit or whatever they may produce to try to uh, play off all these jokes that people are making about it sounding like a soccer team. They should, oh, they should have made them available today right before World Cup. It starts on Sunday. Yeah, the soccer fever is here. Maybe the BC United fever will catch on soon after. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Richard, thanks for your time, my friend. Thanks, Jess. The BC Liberals will become BC United after party members voted in favour of rebranding. The new name had the backing of 80% of the 8,000 members who voted online between November 13th and Tuesday at 10pm. Voter turnout was low, however, since the BC Liberals have 45 thousand members. Our next guest wasn't supportive of the move. Former leader Gordon Wilson reinvigorated the BC Liberals in the late 1980s. The party then shared an office and funding with the federal Liberal Party until Wilson led the provincial arm in a vote to split in 1989. Gordon Wilson joins us now. Gordon, thanks for speaking to us today. My pleasure. So first of all, uh, your thoughts on the name change. Uh, There has been an overwhelming majority of BC Liberal Party members who have voted to change the name to BC United. Your thoughts? Well, my first thought is it sounds a little bit like an English football team, but uh, rather than the political party. But beyond that, it doesn't doesn't surprise me because we're in the sort of modern era of politics where 
political parties are marketed more like a product than they are um, a philosophical base of principles uh, that uh, the electorate might want to elect on. So they look toward uh, a new, fresh uh, way of marketing or branding uh, your political party to put it in front of people. Um, and I think it's a, it's a real change uh, in, in the way that we approach politics uh, in the modern day than, than the, the time when I was uh, involved in, in, in politics. So I, I, that doesn't surprise me. I think the other reason is because it's a broad spectrum of political supporters. A lot of people who vote uh, for the Liberal Party provincially are federal conservatives. Um, I know that a number of those conservatives find that the name liberal sort of sticks in their throat a bit like a chicken bone and they, they can't stand the name. They wanted to change it. They wanted to change it for a long time. So I suspect this is a, a shift to the right for that uh, for that party. I suspect that the conservatives who are involved in the political party have taken a much stronger hold in the liberal party than before. Um, and uh, it, as I say, it, it doesn't really surprise me. There There are those who think it no longer is a Liberal Party, so they would vote to change the name because they say, don't call yourself something you're not. And then there are those who can't stand the name Liberal, so they're going to vote for it because they, uh, they want it gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the back of the napkin math, the party says 8,000 people voted, and of those 8,000 voted, 80% voted uh, for the name change. Uh, my understanding is during the leadership race, they had actually signed up 44,000 members, so that would be roughly about 18% who actually uh, voted uh, for the name change. Um, you were a member of the party. Will you remain uh, a member of the party with this name change? Uh, probably not. I mean, I'm I'm getting on in age now, and I've I've become in my older age uh, more cynical. I think about the political process in in British Columbia in particular, but uh, globally, um, it. it I, I, when I was involved in, in politics, I, I wanted to put forward a political party. And when we built the Liberal Party back into to, in, in the 1991 90, election, we ran on a foundation of principles. And those principles were very much centered in the middle of the political spectrum, uh, broad-ranging, uh, free enterprise, not private enterprise, which, and there's a very real distinction between that. Um, and that's shifted away. We're, we're returning back to polarized politics. You can see it uh, in Canada, federally, on the federal level. Uh, we're becoming more polarized, certainly in the United States. Uh, the midterms, I think, were, were interesting in the sense that the, the Americans, as polarized as they are, at least polarized more toward the center than they did on the extremes, which is encouraging. But, um, no, I, I think that uh, it's time for a younger group of people to come forward and to, to take over reins and to, to get involved uh, I'll be an interesting observer from the sidelines. Do you think this is a mistake? Yes. Uh, in, in a word, I think it's a real mistake because uh, I think what it does is it unmasks the notion that there is no philosophical basis to that party. I asked a, um, a young uh, liberal, a young fellow who's a, a liberal member in, the, in, in a Vancouver riding, um, I said, well, what is the philosophy of the BC United Party? And he said, well, we haven't finished the public opinion polling yet. And I thought, so you're going to develop your your political philosophy on the basis of a public opinion poll? And I think the truth is that they don't make a distinction, or he doesn't, certainly doesn't make a distinction between a political party platform that might be set for an election as a party, uh, an election platform, and as a philosophical basis upon which uh, a political party or political movement can start to, to build. And I think that's very much part of the Gen Z, if I can use that way of the world these days, that... Uh, 
history be damned. It doesn't really matter how things came. It is today what it is. And uh, things are fast moving and fast changing in a very populist kind of way. And um, that's that's kind of the modern the modern take on it. Uh, in an era of populism, in an era of uh, polarized politics, is it almost impossible to keep a big tent party together, specifically one that does include uh, federal liberals and federal conservatives here in B.C.? I think it is extremely difficult to do it um, without compromising on many, many fundamental principles that the party is founded on. Uh, part of the reason is because of what I call the new tribalism, where we're, we're siloing ourselves into into this new tribal sort of entity, whether it's it's being a member of a, of the LGBTQ community or the members of the black community, or whether it's the Aboriginal community and reconciliation, whether it's um, women as opposed to men, uh, each of these kinds of uh, identity political realms, this identity politics that we play. Um, now starts to ad- advance issues that are specific to their particular tribal interest, if I can use that. And the difficulty with that is that, that it's membership-driven. You, you have to be a member of that uh, particular tribe in order to be able to uh, be permitted to speak for it. And in speaking for it, uh, whether you actually have the authority to or not, uh, you start to advance political uh, agendas that are more specific to, to the personal interests of that collective group than we are in terms of individual rights. And I think that's a, a, a fundamental change and shift in Canada. And I think it's a, it's a dangerous one. Uh, it's very much speaks to the, to this rise of the sort of the, this tribal populist view that uh, individual rights in Canada now are essentially giving way to collective rights, collective interests. And those collective interests are defined very much by this new sort of tribalism. Mm-hmm. Well, if you take this new tribalism, and, and let's just say sprinkle in demographic shifts in this country, uh, we're going to hit half a million immigrants coming to Canada by 2024, 2025. Uh, there was a time um, in the 1990s, which you would remember very well, uh, you were a political leader at that time, we used to debate immigration levels of 220 to 240,000 people coming into the into the country. Now we're going to be hitting half a million. And those immigrants, as you know very well, predominantly settle in three main community cities, uh, Vancouver, uh, Toronto, and Montreal. With what BC uh, United Party is doing, and generally these immigrants who have a tendency to vote more center, center-left, and not all, of course. Uh, federal liberals have done well with immigrant communities, the federal NDP as well, uh, and some would say locally as well. Is that going to help BCUP um, in regards to attracting this urban audience? Do you think that this new political entity can attract an, an urban audience? Because right now when you look at them, there are a predominantly outer suburb, interior, par- and northern BC party. They're not, a one would argue, a metro Vancouver party. Well, I think you, you've really put your finger on a very, very important uh, issue. Uh, the The notion that uh, British Columbia is a resource-based economy is something that's being challenged every day now. Um, and it's challenged only in the intellectual and theoretical sense. The, the, the bottom line is it still is a, is a resource-based economy if you want to keep this economy functionally moving because there are the money is footloose it can be invested wherever it can make its greatest return and that doesn't happen to be in british columbia right now so i think those people who believe that we can shift away quickly from a resource-based economy um are are really whistling in the wind however that said i think you're absolutely right with the shift in the demographic and the urban communities you are going to start to see 
larger and larger blocks of votes that are going to be uh, drifted into the center-center-right uh, type of thinking because many immigrant populations who are coming here are coming here in order to have um, freedom of, of access with, with respect to the economy as much as anything else. I mean, they're looking for a way for them to be able to uh, live the life they see uh, Western people's living as opposed to the way that they might be able to uh, to achieve those kinds of, um, of goals in their own communities. So I think that, or in their own countries, I think that, that that's a, a very important aspect of what's likely to take place in the next 10 years in British Columbia or 20 years. Uh, and yes, I think that uh, a center-right party is going to benefit from that uh, in large measure, um, unless there is uh, uh, the divisions become so significant around issues like environment, uh, and those kinds of things, that it actually tends to push it back the other way. Mm-hmm. But you think the BCUP can attract those immigrants, or do you think it, it, those immigrants would, tr- would, would look more towards an NDP-type coalition or, or, or even a, a provincial federal uh, or provincial liberal-type um, uh, camp? I mean, generally, these communities do well with liberals and New Democrats. Some do vote conservative federally, but not as many as the conservatives would like. Do you think BCUP can still attract those those communities? Because right now, their caucus certainly doesn't look like 21st century British Columbia. Well, that's very true. Uh, that's very true, Jazz. And I think that the you ask, can they, can they attract? Yes, they can, depending on what their philosophical basis is, depending on how they structure the party. And that's one of the reasons I think it's a mistake to change the name. Because the Liberal Party means something more uh, than just a brand that you put in front of the electorate. It, there's a fundamental basis of philosophy that talks about individual rights and freedoms that is, are, are protected. And in fact, one of the greatest uh, achievements of the Federal Liberal Party uh, na- uh, nationally, on, on a national basis, was the, uh, the implementation of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which is now being um, misinterpreted, I think, to uh, drift away from individual rights, which is what many immigrant po- uh, peoples want, is the right for individual freedom, uh, and it's becoming now pushed into a more collective right and collective interest. And I think that's a problem for both, uh, to be honest, the uh, um, BC United Party, if we can call it that, and the New Democratic Party, because um, people who are coming to this country are coming because they are trying to get away from uh, oppressive economies, oppressive uh, governments, they, they are looking to try and find ways in which they can raise their families in a free and open economy. That's what the BC Liberal Party was all about when I was involved with it, was to make this uh, an opportunity for those uh, individuals to be able to thrive individually and not to have to uh, push themselves into one of these little tribal groups to be able to, uh, to identify as, uh, as, as one of these members. Well, Gordon, uh, I, I wish you well, and I know you'll be watching all of this from afar in Powell River, but watching closely indeed. I really appreciate your time uh, and sharing your experience with us as well. Thank you so much today. Uh, my pleasure. 35 years ago today, the journey began that has blessed us with one of the best things the Internet ever birthed. Rick Astley's album, Whenever You Need Somebody, was released on this day in 1988. Seven. Joining me now, Steve Chang, our producer of this show, to talk a little bit about the cultural relevance uh, of this song, released three and a half decades ago. I've got to ask the obvious question, Stephen. Were you born uh, after this song came out? <laughs> uh, yeah, much after. <laughs> much, much <laughs> after, Jazz. Oh, man. Oh, man. What a classic, though, right? <laughs> 
Oh my god. <laughs> the song or the meme? That's the what so- I- <laughs> well, both. You know what? I I may have not been born when the song came out, uh-huh. but I was definitely in my teenage prime years when the meme was going around at, and it was at its hottest period. Now, before the meme came out, were you aware of this song? Yeah, no, actually I was. Um I mean, first of all, like my parents love to play this song. My grandparents love to play this song. I hear this in like every Filipino party I've been to. Karaoke, <laughs> Family Guy. Like the the song has been everywhere, but definitely the meme, the Rick Rolling trend is what set it off into like all new, all different heights all so, over the world. So walk me through how how did this uh, the song come about, the album? Uh, okay, so, well, the album came out in uh, November 16th, 1987, right? Mm-hmm. So it is his best-selling album, selling 15.2 million copies worldwide. Wow, wow. I could, I could bet you it's streamed, like, maybe, I don't know, hundreds of millions of times? Oh, probably. Yeah, 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 yeah. Tons of times, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. So when did the Rickroll start, the Rickroll uh, phenomenon start? Well, before I get to that, too, I do want to throw in one more stat, Jazz. Yeah. The music video has hit over 1.3 billion views on YouTube. Wow. <laughs> and it keeps going. And it keeps going. That's one out of eight people on the planet if individuals looked at it. So it gives you a sense of how big it is. So walk me through the Rickroll. Rickroll, because I remember the song growing up. Uh, Chris Kalos was on earlier talking about what's on the news hour tonight. and He mm-hmm. certainly remembers it. I think he was in his late teens at the time. Yeah. Um, so when did the Rickroll phenomenon start? So it started around uh, 2007, around that time. So we know Rick Astley retired from music in the age of 27 to focus on family. But while he was on holiday in 2007, out of nowhere, his friend just starts sending him a link that leads to a music video of that song, telling him that he's been Rick Rolled. He's like, what, what, what are you talking about? Okay, so it actually started from 4chan, the uh, infamous uh, forum site online. So trolls on that site kind of did this thing where they implemented a word filter replacing the word egg with the word duck as a gag. So it's kind of like a bait and switch thing. So if you type egg roll, uh, it automatically becomes duck roll and a user would just post an edited image of a duck on wheels and calling it the duck roll. Oh, really? And then so it started from there? So it started from there. Um, It had nothing to do with Rick Astley yet until eventually later on in March 2007, that bait and switch method of the duck roll was was what happened to the Rick roll. So... Around March 2007, the first trailer for the very popular game at the time, Grand Theft Auto 4, was released on the site of the official uh, game developer Rockstar Games. So people were so excited for this game. They're like, oh my god, I can't wait to see the trailer. And they go on the website and it crashes. But thanks to the internet jazz, a lot of these people started sharing the link to the trailer of Grand Theft Auto 4 all around 4chan, all around YouTube, everywhere Mm. you go. But little did they know, Jazz, that when they clicked that link, all they heard was. And it just keeps getting it, it just keeps going from there. Yeah, I mean, it's a true cultural uh, phenomenon now. And, and, and I'm, I'm guessing Rick Astley actually took it in stride and he, he, he sort of just, uh, you know, he's, he, he likes it. He's not offended or anything. Like that. Oh, no, no. If anything, it's like a resurgence of his career. So for the next little while, like for a long time, all you heard was when, you, when someone sends you a video or no matter what it is, even on TV, all you hear is every... 
freaking time. <laughs> Every time. <laughs> now, and it's and it's, there's some cultural references too. Like so shows are using it too, right? Exactly. Yeah. So first of all, uh, for example, Rick Astley went to Toronto for. Uh, a collaboration with Choir, 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 which is where uh, kind of a program run by two individuals who uh, invite people from Toronto or anywhere they go to join up in a choir together and just start singing along to songs and making it a whole cool like spectacle. So Rick Astley was part of this, and they also did a rendition to Never Gonna Give You Up. Here's a clip. I'm Rick Astley. We are somewhere in Toronto. <laughs> With a fantastic choir, and we are about to sing Never Gonna Give You Up. Never gonna give you up, never gonna let you down, never gonna run around and desert you, never gonna make you cry, never gonna say goodbye, never gonna tell a lie and hurt you. That's that's amazing. I, I've I've seen some of the, the choir, choir, choir. For him to actually show up, go to a basement of a of a pub somewhere and start yeah. singing that, and it's a great rendition. If anybody uh, just um, go to YouTube and and uh, type in Rick Astley and choir, 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 and it's a, it's a great little little video. But I mean, beyond just showing up at smaller events, I mean, you look at cultural events or TV shows. He's he's involved with some of those as well. Like, he, or at the very least. His song and he is, uh, are, they're referenced. Exactly, Jazz. And this is how much of a cultural icon this song is. It was actually uh, at part of season two and Ted Lasso. So this one, um, the choir, choir, choir rendition brings you to tears in a happy way where it, it just sounds so beautiful. But in Ted Lasso, it brings you to tears in a, a bit of a sad way because this song actually showed up in a uh, funeral episode. Uh, one of the characters, her father passes away. And this song kind of like plays throughout because it's kind of a, a bit of a similar metaphor, if you will, on the relationships uh, that they have in the show and how like even though you love someone, you never want to give them up kind of thing. So this happened at the funeral of this character's father. And this is kind of the eulogy that she uh, gives out. Here's a clip. Never gonna give you Never gonna let you down Never gonna run around And desert you Never gonna make you cry Never gonna say goodbye Never gonna tell a lie And hurt you Never gonna give you up Never gonna let you down Never gonna run around kind of weird to think of that in the funeral I, i've seen the funeral scene it's actually pretty funny when you see it it's it's it is uh it uh, you don't expect them to start start singing at a funeral but it was actually it was actually quite funny and when, when you actually see the context as to how they do it now uh finally uh we talk about rick rolling but i you it's interesting that even new artists uh have found a way to reinvigorate 35 year old song <laughs> exactly jazz this is a good way to kind of introduce this song to even the next generation and the generation after that so uh, i wouldn't call him a rapper but this artist uh young gravy uh released a song called betty and of course it samples rick astley never let you down baby uh, never take an l no more never take a damn thing slow oh i know it's trey 
dance with me, Jazz. <laughs> Steven, thank you. Thank you, Jazz. All right. 35 years ago today, Rick Astley's album, Whenever You Need Somebody, was introduced to the world. Thanks for listening, folks. Inspired by the life and art of the late Michael Jackson, MJ the Musical opened on Broadway uh, in February of this year. And as you can tell by the music, it tells the story of American singer, songwriter, and dancer Michael Jackson. Now, from its opening, MJ received mixed reviews, but it has been a success at the box office. MJ was nominated for 10 Tony Awards, including uh, Best Musical. It is a reminder, of course, the uh, long after his passing, Michael Jackson still remains a fascinating figure. Our next guest recently watched the play. He wasn't just another tourist visiting New York. Vancouverite Stuart uh, Backerman was Michael Jackson's close confidant and publicist from 2002 to 2004. He joins us now. Stuart, thank you for uh, joining us today. Oh, I'm delighted, Jazz. Love your show, by the way. Oh, thank you so much, and it's uh, good to hear your voice. We haven't talked for, well, years and years, and uh, this goes back to my TV days, but it is really good to hear your voice. Um, First, um, I guess let's touch a little bit about on the play for a moment. Uh, When did you go and and watch the play? I saw it at the very end of June, Um, actually about June 28th, to be exact. And when you uh, went to the play, what kind of memories or what was going through your mind? Because you have such a unique perspective for all of this. You're not just another tourist visiting New York. Uh, what was going through your mind as you entered uh, the Neil Simon Theatre? Well, it was really quite an amazing feeling. Firstly, the energy in the crowd uh, was really quite special. And uh, I really noticed a, a kind of a, 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 young, a younger skewing of the audience uh, which was uh, quite interesting. And, of course, watching the show, you know, there was one point, Jazz, that I closed my eyes, and uh, the voice of Miles Frost, who plays Michael Jackson tremendously, by the way, and, of course, he won the Tony Award for Best Actor for his performance as Michael Jackson. I closed my eyes, and I swear before God I could hear Michael Jackson talking to me. I mean, his voice was exactly like Michael's. His singing was exactly like Michael's. His dancing, not quite. I mean, because Michael Jackson was one of the great, great dancers of all time, but his dancing was tremendous and really gave a fantastic performance. But I was thinking about a lot of things, uh, particularly the first time I met Michael. Uh, I was invited down to Neverland and flew down to Neverland and had a real special experience because um, <laughs> Michael's a bit of a jokester and took me to um, at Neverland, this movie theater, um, as part of a tour of Neverland when we first met for the first time. Um, we Before we met for the first time, we had been speaking for a number of months about doing Peter Pan, the musical on Broadway. Um, that's how we initially connected up. We were, so we were going to do the show on Broadway and had, uh, connected with a number of New York theaters, uh, but unfortunately, you might recall the baby dangling incident happened in uh, mm-hmm. uh, at the Bambi Awards in Berlin, and just wasn't an appropriate time to do a show about children. But because we connected kind of on an emotional level, my wife and I, Linda and I, adopted both of our children at birth, and of course, Michael Jackson adopted his children uh, at birth um, in conjunction. Uh, with Debbie Rowe, um, his wife, uh, uh, through artificial insemination, et cetera. But um, he said something so special that first time we met. 
um, regarding the whole issue of adoption when he said, Stuart, I can't believe that you rescued. He used the term rescued. He mm. rescued your your two children from what could have been, you know, any number of multiple foster homes or whatever the outcome might be. And um, was quite enchanted with the fact uh, that we had done what he had done. So we made a real connection. Um, but, of course, the Peter Pan show couldn't go on. In fact, we got in touch with Alice Cooper um, to uh, consider playing Captain Hook, and there was real interest there. So could you imagine the show at that point in time, Michael Jackson starring as Peter Pan on Broadway with Alice Cooper as Captain Hook? Oh, my God. So <laughs> well, let's, let, let, now let's, let's just talk about the play just for a second. I, want, I do want to get to some of the stories you're telling me here. When you walked into the theater to watch MJ, were you nervous, excited? Like, what, what, what was the emo- What kind of emotions were you going going through? I was excited. Firstly, um, the estate actually having the gumption, Jazz, to put that show on, um, given you know the various um, allegations and some of the downside rumors and gossip that you know went along with Michael Jackson for all those years. Um, but they did it in such a wonderful way. Um, so I was excited to see how they would do it, and they really did it in a wonderful way, where they really sidestepped any of the, you know, controversial issues and focused on his artistry and his music and his famous songs and how they were presented. The choreography was magnificent, and the crowd, like me, was all sort of at the edge of their seats. And so it, it was really special. Um, and like I say, um, he was so good, Miles Frost, that, um, you know, he, he he just really pulled it off tremendously. And uh, I was very happy for him, and I was certainly happy for Michael that somebody um, as well-versed as uh, Miles Frost was, was doing the role for him. How did you and Michael meet? Was it because of that play, as you had mentioned? It was, or was yes. it a—so you contacted his office? No. Um, he hired a new manager— um, he let go of his former manager um, and hired a fellow that lived in Vancouver, uh, up at UBC, actually, a, a German fellow. Um, and that German fellow um, uh, was having lunch with a colleague of mine, uh, nothing to do with me. Um, they were just talking about um, some high-tech applications that uh, the new manager wanted to bring in to the fold for, for Michael Jackson uh, to help rebrand him at the time um and they were discussing the fact that michael didn't really want to perform anymore um he, he wanted to do uh, films he wanted to direct he wanted to do choreography he wanted to do animation particularly but he really didn't want to perform before but there was one show he's always wanted to do and it was peter pan the musical now i produced uh peter pan the musical um, here in Vancouver at the Queen Elizabeth Theatre after I left the city of Vancouver as head of arts and cultural affairs. And that show, that first night, opening night jazz, um, two producers, two very big-time producers, Marvin Krauss and Irving Siders, who had produced the original productions of Oklahoma, Guys and Dolls, South Pacific, those kinds of shows in the 50s and early 60s in New York, were coming back from Japan came to see opening night of Peter Pan the Musical with Kathy Rigby. That's who we cast in that role and uh, offered us a, a national tour. And uh, eventually there were two limited engagements of that production on Broadway. So Michael Jackson 
fast forward 10 years later, heard about this from this colleague of mine that he was having lunch with and said, I want to very much uh, do that show. Um, and I'd like you to get in touch with this fellow. So my colleague called me, make a long story short. A week later, I got a call from Neverland from Michael Jackson on the phone. And Hi, what? Stuart. This is Michael. <laughs> I was just discussing Peter Pan with <laughs> Wow. So, well, and, and so manager. Yeah, fast forward, you became his spokesperson, um, confidant. What was that, um, I don't want to call it a circus, but it is a circus because it's Michael Jackson, the attention and everything else that comes with it. What was that like being a representative for Michael Jackson in such a high-profile position? Well, it was really quite a journey. It was amazing, Uh, really, from beginning to start. There were so many controversies. I came in um, after the Peter Pan situation and after the, uh, Bambi Award debacle um, with the uh, baby dangling incident and how to put out a million fires. Um, uh, Gloria Allred, the Los Angeles uh, high-profile celebrity attorney, was calling L.A. Family Services after the baby dangling incident, saying that Michael should be this and that. That led to the Martin Bashir documentary that uh, kind of um, put Michael in the light of having untoward relationships with young boys, which really killed him, Jazz. That, even though we did a rebuttal and everything, you know, kind of turned around um, over the years, uh, notwithstanding a lot of trauma, including the trial in 2005, but that Martin Bashir documentary, because if you recall, in 93, uh, he made a settlement to uh, uh, another mm-hmm. uh, a boy, um, and uh, and that was in 93. So this is now fast forward 10 years later. He thought he had gotten beyond that and was kind of reworking himself into his new life, so to speak, his new midlife uh, sort of situation. And then Martin Bashir did that documentary. And let me tell you, he really never recovered from that because the stigma and branding of Michael Jackson as a blank, 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 never really went away until more recently, which is the thing that got me going about writing the article that I did because I'm watching the show and I'm saying to myself, all that stuff that happened, all the insults about Wacko Jacko, all the blah, blah, blah about Michael has been dissipated because the crowds went crazy because they were focusing just on his artistry, which was who Michael Jackson was, tremendous artist. Did did you... Did you believe any of the allegations against him, though? I mean, not just while you were there, but after. I I never saw anything untoward, and I spent a lot of time with him, both at Neverland and Las Vegas and various other places in the United States, etc. And I never saw anything untoward. I saw him being kind to young, prepubescent adults, 12, 13, 15-year-old guys. But I never saw anything you know, any funny business. And, and I'm not from the Hollywood crowd, believe me. And when I took that job, I was like 49 years old with the family and having, you know, all my experience at the city and producing shows, et cetera. So I wasn't some naive little kid. So, you know, I, 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 I took on the responsibility um, knowing that I have to be accountable and be honest about the situation. But really, I, I never saw anything that led me to believe that he was anything other than idiosyncratic so to speak i mean you know he was a he was a funny guy and did funny things but i never really felt that 
the accusations were true. And of course, the, the trial of the century, so to speak, he was... Uh, there were other allegations after, uh, even the ones oh, that we were yes, talking yes, about, and even after his death, you believe that none of them ever were true? These are just people looking for attention and, and for money? I believe that's the case, really. I believe he was a sensitive soul who um, who felt that children of 12 or 13 was was like him. In other words, he never grew up. The reason he wanted to do Peter Pan and the reason he presented the way he presented in his life was because he really never did grow beyond 12 or 13 in a certain way. He was very, very astute when he came to business and in terms of his, you know, dealings with people, et cetera. But really down, you know, in his heart, so to speak, he was really a a youngster, a, a teenager where he conducted his life, et cetera. So, no, I really didn't, and particularly the last one. The I think that was called Finding Neverland, I believe, mm-hmm. where um, two of the boys um, who were with Michael for for a long time, um, as I'll call them proteges or friends or close folks. <clears throat> um, I truly believe in those in that particular case that those two guys were looking to cash in. I, I don't believe there was anything that really uh, happened. Uh, sexually or whatever, um, um, uh, criminally, uh, with Michael and those two boys. So, you know, who knows anybody, really, when when push comes to shove? You hardly know yourself, no less, you know, mm-hmm. people close to you. But notwithstanding the amount of time I spent, et cetera, I can't say definitively because I don't know. And I was only with him for two years as opposed to many years before that. And yeah. Then, of course, subsequently. So we got about thirty. think we... on it as such that um, he, 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 he didn't do those things that, that he was uh, accused of doing. Yeah. we got 30 seconds left here, Stuart. Uh, at the end of the day, you went to this play called MJ, the musical. Like I said, uh, it's a success at the box office. It was nominated for actually 10, uh, 10 Tony Awards, including Best Musical. You had a wonderful time, and it brought back uh, great memories for you. Absolutely. Wonderful time of my life. And, uh, you know, the thing that the show left me with and what's going on now is that there's really an MJ, Michael Jackson revival. It's happening all over the world. The fan base, the fans, the Broadway show, uh, the, the hit movie, This Is It, which was the uh, documentary about the rehearsals he was supposed to do prior uh, to his passing away. So there's a real revival going on. And uh, I'm happy that it's happening for him. Um, and his family. Stuart, my friend, pleasure chatting with you. Uh, It's been a long time, but great to hear your voice. Thank you so much. Great to hear you. You're doing a great job. Keep up the good work. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.